Washington, D.C. This is On the Ground. Days before the Trump administration is set to begin raids on immigrant families around the country, a mother who came to the U.S. seeking asylum offers heart-wrenching testimony to Congress about the death of her daughter just after release from U.S. custody. All of the hard work of these doctors came too late. My Marie died on what is Mother's Day in my country. When I walked out of the hospital that day, all I had with me was a piece of paper with Marie's handprints and pink paint. It was the only thing that I had left. And as British commandos still hold the seized oil tanker belonging to Iran, Gerald Horn weighs the implications of U.S.-backed provocations around the globe. Now that Britain is leaving the European Union, it will become a kind of vassal state, believe it or not, uh, on behalf of the United States of America, uh, doing U.S. dirty work just as it sought to capture a, an Iranian tanker that was destined for Syria. These stories and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, two days before the Trump administration is expected to begin those mass raids on immigrant families around the country, tens of hundreds are expected to attend a vigil called Lights for Liberty in front of the White House tonight at 7 p.m. as we go to broadcast on July 12th. The White House event where attendees are encouraged to bring battery-operated or cell phone lights is one of the 780 Lights for Liberty events planned for around the world to protest the Trump administration's immigration policies that have led to the abuse, sexual assault, and deaths of children in U.S. custody. A coalition of organizations including DMV Sanctuary, CASA, and the Washington Ethical Society are sponsors of the vigil. Members of these groups, along with Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, co-founder of Lights for Liberty, are included in a video posted about the vigil. I had an uncle who was deported a couple years ago and killed three months after. Children stuffed in these cells. What's being done by our government right now is outside the realm of anything that the standards of humane conditions are defined as. The president tweeted yesterday, many of these illegal aliens are living far better now than where they came from. A lot of the kids that I work with have told me that they've been mistreated, that they were not given water, that they were not allowed to go to the restroom, that they scream and curse at them in English and Spanish. People across the nation are really feeling a deep disturbance of our souls. America has stood for the idea that we welcome our tired, our poor, our huddled masses. If we are ever going to truly live into that as an ideal, immigration cannot be criminalized in this country. An online post, Lights for Liberty says that it intends to shed light on the detention camps until they are all closed. They are using the hashtag close the camps. The other big story in D.C. this week is fallout from the arrest of billionaire pedophile Jeffrey Epstein with calls for Labor Secretary Alex Acosta to resign because of his role as Miami's top federal prosecutor more than a decade ago. In that role, he secured a very lenient and experts say an illegal deal for Epstein. The deal allowed Epstein to serve 13 months in prison with almost daily visits to his office. The scandal has also drawn attention because of reporting that may link Epstein to U.S. spy agencies and because of Epstein's close connection to other elites 
including former President Bill Clinton, current President Donald Trump, and the lawyer Alan Dershowitz. In other national news, the American Federation of Teachers Union filed a lawsuit against Education Secretary Betsy DeVos on Thursday, alleging that DeVos is mismanaging a federal program designed to provide student loan debt relief to teachers and others who choose a career in public service. And on Tuesday, climate activists scored a victory when Senator Bernie Sanders and Representatives Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Earl Blumenauer introduced resolutions in Congress declaring that climate change is a national emergency. That same day, the group Extinction Rebellion marched to the Capitol and called on House Leader Nancy Pelosi and Senate Leader Mitch McConnell to support the declaration of a climate emergency. What do we want? Climate emergency! When do we want it? In culture and media, on Saturday, July 13th at 4 p.m., the Party for Socialism and Liberation is screening The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson, a documentary that celebrates the lasting political legacy of Johnson, who played a major role in the 1969 Stonewall Uprising and the rise of the modern LGBTQ movement for rights. The program takes place at the Justice Center, 617 Florida Avenue in Northwest D.C. And on Wednesday, July 17th, there's a free D.C. preview screening of Official Secrets, a true-life drama about a whistleblower grappling with the aftershocks of 9-11 and politicians in the U.S. and Britain angling to evade Iraq. After the film, there will be a panel with director Gavin Hood and real-life whistleblower Catherine Gunn. For more information and free events tickets, go online to ips-dc.org slash events. And finally, the National Black United Front is celebrating its 40th anniversary. And in D.C., there are a series of events, including the program From Gentrification to Reparations, Activism in the Millennial Era. And that's July 13th, 2019, from 12 p.m. to 2 p.m. at the African-American Civil War Memorial and Museum, 1925 Vermont Avenue in Northwest D.C. And those are headlines and happenings. When we come back... Gerald Horn on International News. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, and I'm Esther Averam, joined now by Professor Gerald Horn to discuss more international news. And Gerald, as we have discussed, much of the 
world conflict that the U.S. has fomented directly or indirectly is what is winding up on our doorstep on the southern border. And on Tuesday, immigrants from Cameroon staged a protest in Tijuana, Mexico. So remind us again how Africans are migrating through Central and South America and are part of the humanitarian crisis on the southern border. Well, Cameroon, as you know, is in Central West Africa. It has a unique history of colonialism insofar as it was colonized by both France and Britain at different times. And there hangs a tale because right now what's going on in Cameroon is that the U.S.-backed dictator Paul Bia has been repressing and oppressing Cameroonians who are from the so-called Anglophone region. That is to say, they feel that they're facing linguistic discrimination, and this led to a sharp military conflict that's rapidly descending into civil war. So what's happening is that many Cameroonians are crossing the Atlantic on visa-free entry into Brazil and then making their way northward to North America in a very horrendous and hazardous journey with people dying along the way with women having babies along the way, and now some have made it all the way to the border with San Diego, California. This is taking place in the context of the Mexican crackdown on migration northward from Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador that was engineered largely because of pressure from the 45th U.S. president. And so you now have this very unfortunate and tragic situation unfolding just south of San Diego, California, with Cameroonians joining Haitians, and I should also say some Congolese as well, who have found it necessary to flee their country, clamoring to get into the United States of America. Uh, Certainly, I would hope and imagine that this is just the kind of issue that the Congressional Black Caucus should get involved in. Well, also in terms of Africa news, the African Continental Free Trade Area, which went into force back in May, was finally signed by Africa's largest economy, Nigeria, on Sunday. So what does this free trade area mean for Africa? And what does it mean that Nigeria has finally gotten on board? Well, Nigeria is not only critical to the African continental free trade area, which in many ways is a precursor to what is now the European Union, that is to say an attempt to break down tariff barriers to allow for the free movement of capital and labor and services across borders within Africa. Nigeria is also critical to the development of a common currency in West Africa called the ECHO, which is short for the Economic Community of West African States, ECOWAS, of which Nigeria is the preeminent and prominent member. It's very important to stress the profundity of what's happening with regard to this African continental free trade area, uh, signing up virtually every African nation now that Nigeria has signed on, barring Eritrea and East Africa. It's the largest free trade area in the world right now. And as well, I think it's going to be very important if you look at the experience of the European Union, 
which has allowed relatively small nations like Portugal and Belgium to stand up, for example, to the United States because these small European nations are backed up by larger European nations such as France and Germany. Likewise, we expect that small African nations like Malawi and Togo, for example, will be better positioned to stand up to Washington because they'll be part of this larger entity. And in fact, to continue the analogy, just like France and Germany have been the locomotive of the European Union, uh, we expect South Africa and Nigeria to be the locomotive of the African continental free trade area. And let's hope that our reasons for optimism are well-grounded. So since we spoke last week, British commandos seized an Iranian oil tanker and Iran accused the UK of committing maritime piracy on behalf of the United States. So do we have these provocations upping the ante of tensions there? So what's happened since then? And Well, I'm afraid to say that you're correct. And I think that the situation also bleeds in to this other controversy in Washington with the British ambassador to the United States being forced out because he was not backed up by the Prime Minister-in-waiting, Boris Johnson, during a recent debate that took place with Jeremy Hunt, his major competitor, to succeed Theresa May. What this suggests is that now that Britain is leaving the European Union, it will become a kind of vassal state, believe it or not, uh, on behalf of the United States of America, uh, doing U.S. dirty work just as it sought to capture a, an Iranian tanker that was destined for Syria uh, off the waters of Gibraltar, territory, by the way, that Spain claims and says that it's not British territory. Now that Britain is leaving the European Union, Spain will probably be backed up by the European Union with regard to reclaiming Gibraltar, which further will drive London into the arms of Washington. This is a very complicated scenario that's unfolding, and it also involves Mr. Trump's attempt to slap higher tariffs on European Union exports, particularly he is going after Airbus, which is the major competitor to Boeing, which is now in a kind of downward spiral in light of the fact that their latest jet has been crashing, as evidenced by what happened in Ethiopia and Indonesia in recent months. Now, the problem for the Iranians is that even though there's this conflict between the European Union and the United States, it does not seem as if France and Germany in particular are willing to stand up for Iran to deliver the benefits that were promised by this nuclear deal they signed in 2015. And so despite all of this conflict and controversy, it seems the situation is destined to spin out of control. And I dare say that Iran will be probably forced to retaliate sooner or later against Britain for seizing its oil tanker. Finally, I know we've been keeping an eye on U.S.-China relations and this building Cold War between the two countries. 
This Cold War is deepening with every passing day. In the New York Times of Friday, July 12th, there is a very disturbing article about how U.S. corporate executives are now claiming that they're being prevented from leaving China. This is an apparent retaliation for Canada seizing the daughter of the founder of Huawei, the Chinese telecommunications giant, and she has been held for months now, supposedly because Huawei was violating U.S. sanctions towards Iran. Likewise, you see this multi-billion dollar arms sale of the United States to Taiwan, this rebel province off the coast of China that China claims as its own. This is not good news at all. And there is an ongoing purge of Chinese and Chinese-American scientists from leading universities such as Emory, University of California at San Diego, Temple University, and the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. At the same time, there was a very striking op-ed in the Financial Times just this week where a retired Harvard professor castigates the North Atlantic bloc. He says that in their zeal to bring down the Soviet Union, which they succeeded in doing, they made a devil's bargain, he says, with China that's created a Frankenstein monster, which is the term that he uses for China. And for those who are fans of movies, you may recall that those who created Frankenstein did not end up very well. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned Huawei because there was news this week about all these United States tech companies competing for this $10 billion contract with the Pentagon for cloud computing. And the U.S. has been accusing Huawei of somehow being in cahoots with the Chinese military and kind of saying that, you know, U.S. secrets aren't safe with this company or that that Huawei pays, poses some type of threat to U.S. security and military matters. And here you have these United States companies vying to be this $10 billion contractor for the Pentagon. So they certainly won't be neutral players and they will be directly connected into the military industrial complex in the United States even more so than they are now. Well, in that regard, the most revealing article I've seen was on Asia Times, atimes.org, and it was about Huawei's attempt to develop 5G or fifth generation technology in terms of telecommunications. According to this article, what is infuriating Washington is that with Huawei being in the vanguard of developing 5G, this will allow for a more sophisticated form of encryption, which would complicate, if not eliminate, the possibility that we have seen in recent years, where, for example, U.S. intelligence was monitoring the mobile phone of Chancellor Angela Merkel of Germany, not to mention millions of others. Uh, supposedly, according to A-Times, this 5G technology will basically negate that kind of possibility probably putting a lot of spies out of work and certainly cutting down on the intelligence hall of the United States of America. Well, we've gone from Tijuana to Iran to China, and 
We're certainly going to keep an eye on all these stories. I've been joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. As always, thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. les agradezco a todos ustedes a cada uno por nombre que el señor Jesús me los bendiga gracias presidente Ruskin y el miembro de Rango Roy miembros del comité first of all I'd like to thank each and every one of you and may Jesus bless each and every one of you thank you chairman Raskin ranking member Roy and members of the committee for inviting me my name is Yasmin Juarez My daughter, Marie, and I fled Guatemala seeking asylum in the United States. We made this journey because we feared for our lives. The trip was dangerous, but I was more afraid of what might happen to us if we stayed. So we came to the United States where I hope to build a better, safer life for us. Unfortunately, that did not happen. Instead, I watched my baby girl die slowly and painfully just a few months before her second birthday. It is painful for me to relive this experience and remember that suffering. But I am here because the world should know what is happening to so many children inside of ICE detention. My beautiful girl is gone, but I hope her story will spur this country's government to act so that more children do not die because of neglect and mistreatment. Maria had always been a super happy, very healthy baby. She made the journey from Guatemala without any problems. We were held in CBP custody for three or four days in a facility known as La Yelera, or the ice box, because it's freezing cold. We were locked in a cage with about 30 other people, moms and children, and forced to sleep on a concrete floor. We were sent to the ICE detention center in Dilly, Texas. A nurse examined Marie when we arrived and found her healthy. We were packed into a room with five other people, mothers with children, a total of 12 people in our room. I noticed immediately how many sick children there were in detention, that no effort was being made to separate the sick from the healthy or to care for them. One of the little boys in our room was sick. As a mother, this was very hurtful to see. His mom tried to take him to the clinic, but they kept sending him back without being seen, without care. Within a week of being at Dili, Marie got sick, my little girl. 
First it was coughing and sneezing and a lot of nasal secretions. I brought her to the clinic where I waited in line with many other, many other people in a gymnasium to get medical care. Um, when the physician's assistant saw her days after, she said that Marie had a respiratory infection and prescribed Tylenol and honey for her cough. Pero al día siguiente, Marie empeoró. Tenía fiebre a más de 104 grados y comenzó a tener diarrea, vómitos, no comía. The next day, however, Marie was worse. She was running a fever of over 140 degrees and began having diarrhea and vomiting as well. She wouldn't eat, and I remember her head and her little body felt so hot and that she was weak. On this day, they told me that she had an ear infection and gave her antibiotics. I begged them to do deeper exams, but they sent us back to our room. I tried to come back multiple times to the clinic. I'd wait in lines from early in the morning with dozens of other mothers with their sick children. Twice I was told away and told to go back to my room. Mariette lost almost 8% of her body weight in just 10 days. She was still vomiting constantly. When she was finally seen by a doctor, they told me to give her Pedialyte and Vicks VapoRub. I didn't learn until after she died when I was researching it online that you aren't supposed to give Vicks to kids under two years old because it could cause respiratory problems. My baby got sicker. She was vomiting constantly. Her fever kept going up. She wouldn't eat or sleep. Her body was weak. And when I finally received a notice that Marie had an appointment to be seen by a doctor, I was so relieved, though that didn't happen. We were told that we were going to be processed for a transfer out of detention. And at that point, I was, I was relieved because I thought that I would actually be able to take her to see a doctor. As a mother, it was very important for me to do that. It was very difficult for me to see her suffering. What happened was that at 5 a.m. we were taken, we were awoken and taken to be processed for trans transfer out of detention, and there we waited for hours. She was not taken to the clinic to be seen by medical staff. I later found out that her medical records said that she had been cleared as someone with no medical restrictions, but it did not happen that way. She was never seen. In, even though it says that on her records, as her mother, I can say that she was not seen. I was terrified by the time our plane landed. We took Marie to a pediatrician as soon as we could, and just a few hours later, to the emergency room. She was admitted to the intensive care unit with a viral lung infection. Over the next six weeks, she was transferred to another children's hospital. My little girl suffered horrible pain. She was poked and prodded and eventually needed a ventilator to help her breathe. I couldn't even hold her or hug her or console her when she asked for her mother. It was a terrible pain to see my child in a situation and circumstance like this one. And as a mother, I wish that I could have taken her place. Todo el arduo trabajo de los médicos llegó demasiado tarde. 
Mi María murió el Día de las Madres, que es en la ciudad de mi país, se celebra el Día de las Madres. Cuando yo salí del hospital, ese día, todo lo que tenía conmigo era un pedazo de papel, en la cual los médicos se encargaron de hacer las manitas, las manitas de mi niña. All of the hard work of these doctors came too late. My Marie died on what is Mother's Day in my country. When I walked out of the hospital that day, all I had with me was a piece of paper with Marie's handprints in pink paint that the staff had created for me. It was the only thing that I had left, and the nurses had given it to me as a Mother's Day gift. I'm here today because I want to put an end to this. It is very hard to see so many children and for none of them to be my daughter and to think that I will never see her again or hug her or enjoy being with her or tell her just how much I love her. It is very hard. You have no idea how hard it is to move forward without my little girl. It's like they tore out a piece of my heart like they tore out my soul. I'm suffering every day. It is difficult to get up and move forward without her. I wanted to have a better life for her and a better future and work hard so that she could keep growing the way that she was. But now we won't be able to do that because she is gone. I'm here today to put an end to this and that we not allow any more children to suffer and die in this way. Marie could be here with us, but she is not. Next month, she would have been three years old. That is a very painful date for me. It's painful to not have her with me and show her what I feel and say what I want for her. I have no words to describe that. My daughter is gone. The people who are in charge of running these facilities and caring for these little angels are not supposed to let these things happen to them. Their parents have brought them here to find a better life and a safer life for their children. I'm here today because I don't want any more little angels to suffer the way Marie did and the way I am now. I don't want any more mothers or fathers to lose children. It can't be so hard for a country like the United States to protect kids who are locked up. It is very hard. You don't know the terror that mothers and children feel when they see children in cages, hungry, cold, without the warmth of a home. Just hundreds of other people in the same situation that they are in. It is very painful. If I had the power to change things and do it right and protect children, believe me that I would. I thank God for giving me a heart that is noble but weak. It is very painful to see what children are going to and to want to do something and not be able to. 
I want to thank you with all of my heart, and I want God to bless each and every one of you by name. Thank you for the opportunity to be here and to be able to offer my testimony. I trust in God that you will have the power to change things and make a difference so that children and mothers will not have to suffer. It's a terrible thing. You have no idea the pain of what the pain is that this means to not have her here with me. So my infinite thanks to you and if there's anything that I can do to make a difference, I will. Thank you. Gracias. You have been listening to Yasmin Juarez, a Guatemalan citizen and mother, speaking before the House Oversight Subcommittee on Civil Rights on July 10, 2019. She told lawmakers about her daughter's death after leaving a detention facility in South Texas. Inspired by the strength of the people From the streets to the steeple We all equal inspiration Lo que me inspira es el poder de la gente Lo que usan su mente para revolución hey. I'm inspired by the strength of the people From the streets to the steeple We all equal inspiration Lo que me inspira es el poder de la gente Lo que usan su mente para liberación hey, yo, hey, yo. My heroes are young lords adored And ready to go to war In a society with racial anxiety Singing the blues of various hues and colors On the streets, people were killing each other So they on the coalition of brothers and sisters on a revolutionary mission. Now listen, they won't open with no crooked ass politicians. They made their own decisions based solely on their proposition. They had a 13 point program and platform. They knew that organizing was an art form that they could transform from college students and dorms into a militant organization with uniforms. The newspapers read Liberación Aguante, Liberty of Death to their last breath, fighting for those that have less. So though we mass stress, we still bless. Stay blessed. I'm inspired by the strength of the people From the streets to the steeple We all equal inspiration Lo que me inspira es el poder de la gente Lo que usan su mente para revolución this is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital I'm Esther Ivarum While the humanitarian crisis involving the treatment of asylum seekers and other migrants by the United States only increased in intensity this week the Trump administration is reportedly planning nationwide raids starting this Sunday, July 14th, targeting undocumented families in several cities, including Baltimore. At the same time, horrific reports continue to emerge about conditions in detention facilities and about the treatment of migrants. This week, a report emerged about a 15-year-old girl from Honduras being sexually assaulted by a Customs and Border officer in Yuma, Arizona. Well, here to help us understand the impact of these policies is Heather Benno, attorney with Immigrant Justice Solutions based here in D.C. Welcome to On the Ground, Heather. Thank you so much for having me. Well, first, let's talk about these raids. There are reports that Trump received pushback from his own staff about moving forward with these raids and arrests of families this weekend. Given the crisis already in humanely managing the immigration process at the border and given circumstances like arresting babies and children that are American citizens. So from your vantage point, why is Trump doing this right now? Trump has really already committed himself to a certain racist strategy 
that has targeted Latinos, not only coming from Central America, but also in the United States. So, like, his discussion of this as a deterrent factor, raids and condition of the border, is actually ridiculous because, as you can see from the raids this weekend, the raids are terrorizing our communities here in the United States. So he must have some other goal. And, you know, it's, it's basically established that, I mean, this is a, a strategy to, to sen- essentially demobilize the Latino population moving into the election. Well, obviously, this is a situation of terror for people in these communities, especially when they consider being deported to a place they may not even know, they may not have any memory of or or experience with, and where they may be in danger. So what is the impact? Can you give us some examples of, you know, what people are really facing right now? Of course. So the United States is party to international convention. Um, one is the Convention Against Torture, um, and also has incorporated certain provisions of that per- convention into the federal law. So not only is it U.S. law that forbids somebody from being deported to a country where um, the government either will directly torture them or it's more likely than not that the government would ignore another agent torturing them. Um, this, the United States is forbidden from deporting somebody by law to a country once a finding like that has been made. But unfortunately, under directive from the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security, it seems that the administration is moving forward despite the law. I mean, and this is something that we see, you know, also in other areas. It, it took a lot of pushback um, to get the recent announcement this evening uh, about the census. However, um, at the same time, you know, the administration is still committed, it says it's still committed to, to the same goal and obtaining the same information. So my, my, you know, the woman who came to ask me for advice really had a hard time believing that immigration could actually deport her. Why were they Why were they trying to talk to her? Why did she need to have a meeting with her? Why did she need to bring an an Afghan passport when she can't go back there? So when I heard on NBC News this week about the young girl from Honduras coming forward to report a sexual assault by a Customs and Border Patrol officer in Yuma, Arizona, I have to say it rang true simply because there have been so many incidents of these officers assaulting, beating, killing, shooting people through the fence. One was just acquitted for shooting through the fence at a, a boy on the Mexican side of the border and killing him. So it really rang true because there seems to be this really rogue element of, of these officers that are still allowed to police uh, some of the most vulnerable people in our country. But I didn't remember the case of uh, one of these officers being a serial killer. Yeah, I mean, uh, just just, uh, just to say it's, it's, it's an extreme example, but the point is that, you know, this type of policing, this sexualized, racist, violent policing, which is, this is just 
militarized policing at the border creates these scenarios where the most immoral and, and sometimes, you know, sick individuals can be empowered by the government. Can you refresh our memory? Um, is, this, is this killer in prison? Yes, yes. This was about, I, I want to say it was about a year and a half ago that there was an investigation into one of the Border Patrol agents who was found to have been murdering, murdering prostitutes. So, and I had murdered over 20 of them. So, I mean, the point is that it creates this culture of terror. And that's the kind of culture that the, you know, that the government is encouraging right now. That's the same kind of strategy with the family separation. It's the same kind of strategy with deporting Salvadorans who have been here for 22 years or longer. And it's the same kind of strategy with people from the Middle East, like the woman that I mentioned. So, you know, it's very important. All of the acts of resistance that we're seeing are show how incredibly courageous, on the flip side, those communities actually are. You know, to to be the the sole thing that fights back, um, to organize protests, shutting down ICE being a demand, and, and and really showing the world that we will not be silenced. We're going to fight our cases. We're going to fight them from detention centers. My client that um, is here was here in the D.C. area. This is another extreme example, I'll tell you. But uh, actually, it was in the foster care system in here in Washington, D.C., until he was detained by immigration and has an asylum case in Honduras that we're still litigating, was just stipped to Florida intentionally. Why? To take him away from his attorney, obviously. Wow. You know, this is the type of thing that is happening on a day-to-day basis. But he's not backing down. You know, he wants to expose the racist guards that bullied him in the detention center in Virginia. He wants to organize with the folks conducting hunger strikes. So, I mean, there is a lot of resistance. It is a very difficult and dark time. So I'm not sure if you heard either earlier this week or or in in the segment right before us the comments by... Yasmin Juarez, the young woman from Guatemala, whose baby died uh, shortly after she was released from uh, ICE detention. And I'm going to play just a little, little clip of that for you right now. It can't be so hard for a country like the United States to protect kids who are locked up, it is very hard. You don't know the terror that mothers and children feel when they see children in cages, hungry, cold, without the warmth of a home. Just hundreds of other people in the same situation that they are in. So that was Yasmin Juarez, a uh, young woman from Guatemala, who testified before Congress this week about her ordeal with her toddler daughter dying shortly after being released from ICE detention. And actually in that clip, you're hearing the voice of the translator, Jasmine Rambo. And I'm speaking to Heather Benno, attorney, immigration attorney here based in D.C., and Heather, what was your reaction to hearing the testimony from Yasmin Juarez? 
Yeah, that is, again, an example of somebody, I mean, standing up and we can all agree are the most atrocious of conditions, right? Losing your child, but yet still testifying before Congress, coming to Washington, D.C., in fact, to do that, Mm -hmm. to expose to the world the depravity of a government that targets the most vulnerable for its own objective. And so that, that was what struck me, like her, how, brave she, how brave she is, how brave the millions of people are, actually thousands of families who have lost people in immigration detention. The family where the father unfortunately took his own life after he couldn't find his son when he was separated after the family separation policy took effect. So it does bring back the sense that they are leading this fight and that, that there is hope because people are not going to back down. It's going to get to a point when the administration will be forced to listen. So next, I want to ask you about the census. You know, Trump announced Thursday afternoon that he would not continue to pursue putting a citizenship question on the 2020 census, uh, which human rights advocates said would lead to immigrants opting out of the census and undercount about 6.5 million people nationwide. But it seems to me that, you know, the damage may have already been done because people have been scared away from the census, even if they don't have this question, they might say, okay, they're still going to count me in some kind of way and put a target on my back. So what is being done to get people to kind of stand up and be counted and realize that it's in the benefit of our communities to have the proper count and so that we can have the resources and the representation and the political power that will come from being properly counted. Thank you for addressing this issue because the fact of the matter is that most people who rely on uh, most families living in the United States, documented families even, are eligible for certain government services. And, you know, if the census does not reflect correct information, then a lot of the services that are provided in this country are under threat, and in addition, I mean, we've already seen that the, the election system in this country is not really representative of the political will of the majority, considering that, you know, you don't have to get the majority vote to win due to the Electoral College, but still, the fact of the matter is, it's important to at least have a democracy and fight for the democracy, and if terrorizing people either through violence at the border, immigration raids, or through threats of deportation through citizenship or using other documentation against them, is the way that you're going to win an election, then, I mean, I really think that that's not a system that is sustainable. So I think what's happening here is it it really calls into question the fundamental premises, I think, that most people uh, believe about the political system in the United States. And so that's why this time right now where there are uh, literally concentration camps 
taking place here where people are being forced to drink toilet water and then being told if they don't want that, then they should just stay home and die in their countries. You know, it's not the type of society that people had been raised to believe it should exist. And therefore, I hope that it continues to fuel the resistance that we're talking about, about creating something better. Well, I I think that finally we want to make sure that we give information to people who may need it, who may feel vulnerable and who, who may be vulnerable this weekend and in weeks to come. Uh, just last month, I ran into the son of an undocumented single mother who had been picked up, you know, just after a tra- traffic stop in Prince George's County and never committed any crime, had lived in the United States. I, th- I think he told me for like two decades and she was taken away by ICE and they're trying to deport her, leaving her two sons to fend for themselves. So people are vulnerable. And so what what can we tell people? I, I know I saw one email from an elected official uh, basically giving the advice that you don't have to open your door, that that people should know their rights and that ICE is not allowed to forcibly enter your home. So that's one right that people have. But what else can we tell people in general as they may feel vulnerable right now and in the coming weeks and months? Uh, Yeah, there are a couple of things to keep in mind, just short things to keep in mind. First of all, as a practical matter, because that's really what we're thinking about now. How do you prepare if you're somebody who's most at risk? If you're not at risk, how do you focus on providing community support for the folks that are at risk and, and, and fighting against this? in a political way that we were talking about before. One important way is to have information available to the people uh, closest to you, just in case, if you, if you are at risk, being somebody who has a deportation order already on your record, or somebody who has been perhaps targeted by the criminal justice system and may have a criminal record. If you're in that situation, you probably want to make sure that you have somebody close to you that knows certain biographical information about you, your name, birthday, where you're from, and maybe even your immigration number in case you are detained by immigration so that that person might be able to contact a lawyer or legal services on your behalf. Just having a simple, you know, card that a family member could have up on their refrigerator really could make a big difference between somebody being deported and somebody hiring a lawyer through a local legal service provider like Catholic Charities or Ayuda. Another thing to keep in mind is that their one strategy that immigration is using is called collateral arrest, where basically anybody else who's in the vicinity, you don't have to be the person that they're looking for to be arrested. And so if you are in a situation where immigration is knocking at your door and you were to let them in, then anybody who is undocumented in the home is likely to be arrested by immigration as well. 
So it's really, really important to remember the point about not letting somebody in. But also if that immigration does come to your door and you have to be prepared for that, if immigration were to and you are home and you are the person that they are asking to speak to, it might make sense for you to leave the home voluntarily rather than allow rather than immigration entering and risking everybody else inside. So wow. these are the types of very tough decisions that people are having to make right now. And I encourage folks to call a lawyer and keep the information on knowing your rights that's available through a lot of local nonprofits. You could also contact me, heather.benno at gmail.com, and I'd be happy to get you information um, that you can post on your refrigerator to remind you about what to do in the case of an ICE arrest. Well, I think that's a perfect note to leave this on, a perfect note of information and resistance. And we will post that information, those links for people also on our website, onthegroundshow.org, and it will be linked on the page for this episode, July 12th, 2019. I've been speaking with Heather Benno, attorney with Immigrant Justice Solutions based here in D.C. Thank you for joining me today, Heather. And thank you for your work bringing the fight to so much injustice, which is impacting so many people in our community. Thank you so much. Attorney Heather Benno will have the last word on today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org. Voices of resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. Go to onthegroundshow.org to support us, work with us, and listen to all of our current and past shows. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On the Ground Show. Catch the podcast on iTunes or Google Play under the title WPFW On the Ground. And if you like the show, support us on Patreon. The music we played this hour included Truth Don't Die by Fela Kuti and Inspiracion by Conrado Maluk. Our theme song is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. I'll be at the Art Rave DC on Peace Street in Northwest DC on Saturday, July 13th from 10 to 5. And until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.
mean to take up all your sweet time. I'll give it right back to you. Well, what did you say? 